The New Disruptors, a podcast that thinks that happy birthday to you is clearly outside of copyright protection, even though we're celebrating our first anniversary. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. The New Disruptors is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts, which you can find at boingboing.net. You might also like the new podcast, Not Playing, which comes from my friends Lex Friedman and Dan Morin. They watch movies they've never seen. You can hear a capsule version with their before and after thoughts, or you can download full commentary tracks so you can listen as they watch for the first time, one or both of them. This podcast has its origins in the XOXO Festival in September 2012, where Andy Bayo and Andy McMillan, both of whom have been guests on this show, captured lightning in a bottle, and they figured out a way to bring creative people together who'd sought out alternatives to conventional gatekeeping that prevented artistic expression from reaching audiences, or at least hindered it substantially. XOXO celebrated all that, and I wanted to bring something like that every week to your ears, and that's what this podcast series has been. I thank all of you for listening, whether this is your first episode or you've been listening all along. It's been a pleasure to do it, and I appreciate the feedback I've gotten. You can help support this podcast directly by becoming a patron. I've registered at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, which is a crowdfunding site that lets backers pledge a certain amount per thing, whether it's an episode of a podcast or a music video video or a song. It's for creators who make stuff on a regular basis. I talked to Jack Conti, who you may best know from Pomplamoose, who launched Patreon a few months ago to bring this kind of recurring revenue stream to people who produce material on a regular basis like him. You can pledge as little as $1 per episode and you can cancel your pledge at any time. Your support helps me underwrite both the fixed costs in producing the show and to allow me to devote the time necessary to make it happen. I appreciate any and all support you have to give. Thank you. So for this special anniversary episode, I went back to the first four episodes and talked to the guests again that I spoke with over a year ago. We've got those interviews today. I spoke briefly with each of them about what the intervening year had been like, how their business had transformed, what they'd learned, how they'd finished projects. Let's start with the folks who made Indie Game the movie. Indie Game the movie was one of the first big films that use Kickstarter as a way to get the initial funding to make a film that didn't go through conventional channels to either uh, fund, make, or distribute. Lisanne Peugeot and James Swirsky were the directors, producers, cinematographers, editors, and the distributors of the film, and they were my very first guests on The New Disruptors. Welcome back, Lisanne and James. Thanks Thanks. for having us. Thanks for coming back. And and we talked uh, just at the tail end of what was, you know, kind of your first big whirlwind of work. You'd released the film. uh, I think the DVD was out. I think you'd done the first pass. And we talked, uh, we spoke in October 2012, and I think it aired in early December. uh, And you were just well underway at that point on the special edition. So now it's uh, December 2013. Are, Are you done with the film? We think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we we caught up with you after XOXO uh, in October 2012. And um, I think at that point we thought, oh, you know, the special edition, we'd shot some stuff while we were touring the film, like the feature film. And we thought, you know, it's probably going to be out in, in early 2013. Yeah, we'll knock it out two months, two months more. And it'll be done. And uh no, we had a whole other journey, another year journey with the film, we, which we never expected. I think for the last year, we have thought we were always two months away from being done. Oh, my God. And it's just been this rolling two months. Uh, and it, it wasn't because things were – it wasn't just that things were changing on us. A little bit of that happened, and some things took a little longer than we thought. 
But mostly, a lot of it was just kind of the opportunities just kind of kept on evolving, and the movie kind of just kept on having a life and kept on growing uh, in a pretty organic way. And all these little opportunities would pop up, and you'd kind of go and chase down that, and then that just kind of you know filled up all of 2013. My God, it's the end of 2013. Yeah, it's weird. Oh, that's amazing, though. But so it was so because you had, I mean, at, at the point at which you started on the special edition or really working on on nailing that, you'd already gone through it was what almost three years at that point by because uh, you started in 2011 with the funding stage and the early filming. Uh, we started in 2010. 10. Yeah, oh yeah. my gosh. 10. Yeah, March 2010. Yeah. It's it's the, that rule about uh, time or what is it that whatever time is available, the task will always grow to fill it, right? There's no way to actually – even if you budget time, it's always going to take more and any time you have will be filled. Yeah, like it, it took about a year and a half to make the film and then um, it came out in 2012 in June digitally and that was a whole – we had done the touring already. We had done Sundance and then it was just – it ended up being more things like, for instance, in October 2012 – the film hit Netflix U.S. And we had oh, already yeah. been selling online uh, the film through our website and Steam and iTunes and a bunch of other digital channels. And when that Netflix thing happened, it was like a bomb. <laughs> it was like <laughs> insane. Uh, it, like, it, it was like the movie had been released. It was like June all over again. It, it's like the movie had premiered again uh, because all these new people were, were discovering it. And it felt truly like a discovery for them. You know, they kind of came across this film, and it was something, I guess, that was unique that they haven't really seen before and they really liked, and then just started sharing it. So it was like this other spike this, uh, that we kind of expected, but we didn't expect it to be as big as it was. And then that kind of kicked off, like, just another round of promotion that we kind of didn't anticipate. Didn't anticipate you Did know? you tour again at that point? Or I guess what, what was the impact? So people were talking about it. They'd found it. And I, I assume that because you're an independent filmmaker, you actually get stats from Netflix even that tell you about yeah. streams? Uh, no, you have no idea. You have any idea how many people watch on Netflix? Oh, we, we try to like reverse engineer it. Netflix doesn't yeah. provide any data yeah. to um, any of the their licensors. Yeah. So, but like, they, they cut you. A, they cut you some kind of check, though. Is it? Yeah. I don't even know how that works. We treated the Netflix uh, release for this film as the broadcast release. And ah. usually you would go to a, a broadcaster, but Netflix was really bullish and really wanted the film and wanted to make a big deal, and so we ended up going first to them. And so I don't know how many people have watched it. Like, how many reviews have there been? Yeah, the only stat that you get uh, is one that's publicly available to everybody, uh, which is just customer reviews. Uh, and how many people started. And so we have oh. 3,000 stars and rankings. But then the question is from there, like how many people, like what percentage of people that actually watch take the time to actually, you know, start up? So it's some kind of multiple of 300,000, which is crazy to say that. Uh, but we don't really know. I would love, I would so love to have Netflix statistics. That's but, incredible. So, so that number is staggering, though. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. That's just in the U.S. And then from there, lots of opportunities came up with – because we were the distributors of the film, we ended up uh, distributing it into other Netflix territories and we did promotion and in- interviews around that. So it played uh, – it was a premiere title in uh, the Netherlands and in South America and, and different places. And during that time – so we were dealing with that stuff and making the special edition. We also put out a case study. Which ended up being, it took us a while to put together. It took us like a good three weeks to write. Yeah. yeah. It was about six or seven posts that we did online. And that 
and we just basically broke down like what we did up until that point with making the film and releasing it and all the different sort of pieces of technology and and just sort of the internet and the sort of the philosophy behind it which was connecting with an audience and uh that turned into more speaking opportunities and more <laughs> more stuff and more consulting and more jobs and so we were doing all this sort of side stuff and then eventually we had to like we had this special edition that we had promised people from our first Kickstarter campaign. 23 people, to be exact. <laughs> 23 people. <laughs> and then, but then there was more, there was a lot more pre-orders because we had it available on our site. You know, if you want to see more, you can, uh, we're going to do this awesome special edition. Just you wait. Um, but we'd shot stuff for it. And we got to this point where it had been so long. Like we had hoped that it would come out a couple months after the film had released in June. And we were like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, we have, we have to make this good. And so we essentially doubled down. We put way more work into mm-hmm. it than we ever thought we would, and it ended up being kind of like another sequel. We made 300 minutes of extra content for, like, a, a box set, and then 100 minutes of short <laughs> films and epilogues that ended up going online. And it took us, it took us a while to create it. Yeah, yeah. Like Six a, months. Originally, we just thought it was going to be an extra DVD to go in with Kickstarter backers. And then it ended up being like this three Blu-ray <laughs> with limited packaging and a poster inside of it and a notebook and a laptop sticker. And then we're, we had to create this other – because we went on Steam, we had to create a new Steam application to make this DLC. And it just kind of like – we just – and then then we decided, which was – uh, a little silly, but I'm really glad we did it, uh, that we would sign and number each one. <laughs> and I had no idea how long it would take to write 12,000 signatures and to, like, number them, like, one through 6,000. Oh, and yeah, it, you got to do, like, uh, what is it, the efficiency um, people, the um, uh, efficiency experts, where they break tests down. I was working on a project not that long ago. I was thinking about doing a social media book signing business where I would work and let authors who couldn't go on book tours sign books. And we broke down that exact thing was like, how fast physically could you sign? Like when we have a monitor and it would flash people's names up and their inscription and how many books could an author get through in a day and doesn't pencil out even for books to be efficient. So I'm sure how many, (laughs) so you spent weeks signing then at least, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it was like three days. Well, well three yeah, days. Just, oh my god. Oh, well, just signatures. They weren't inscribed. It was your names. Just signatures. Oh yeah, my just gosh. Signatures, well, two signatures, and then um, like we numbered them. So yeah. like eight, ten hours, both of us, a day. Um, Holy yeah, cow. no. So that was that was a whole thing. And um, what what was really happening? I, I guess what ended up motivating this was twofold. Like the con, like the content and the material and the lives of the people that we followed and their stories kept going, and so. That like there was more interesting stuff happening from you know the guys in the film, and we ended up following up with them and doing these pieces about what it's like to have you know your work out there online and what it's like now, and so that was something that motivated us because there was tons of interest. Like we could see through Google, people you know they'd watch the film you know either through our site or Netflix or something, and they'd be like you know what happened after, you know because the film ends at a certain point. And so that the content motivated that. And we had also interviewed a lot of uh, game developers that hadn't we hadn't included in the film, that we had, you know, done interviews with them and they had these great stories that were sort of told not in real time, but they told, you know, sort of about the, the development of games that had already been out there. And so we included a few of those select things in in the 
in the material. But I guess we were also, so the material was motivating this. And then the other thing that was motivating this is we we're like, oh, there's other ways for this, this content to get out there. Like it doesn't have to just be DVD extras and, you know, and DVD extras don't have to be bad. Why can't they be good? <laughs> Why can't they be produced and be real stories? And how, if I were a fan, how would I want to, like receive the stuff either through the box set or if I didn't want to buy the box set, can I just get it online or, you know, pay a little, like, you know, pay a few dollars extra and get like a DLC version. Mm -hmm. And so we were sort of playing around with that and it just sort of ballooned. Into it seems like you have a, one of the things that usually limits people in doing this is the revenue pipe. And I'm not, it's not saying you guys are made of money, but I'm assuming that like the Netflix deal and then the multiple Netflix deals and then more distribution, that's money that you didn't necessarily expect. I mean, certainly in July, you didn't expect Netflix would come and cut you a big check. And then you didn't expect that. And I, I mean, I, I don't know want to get into the financial details too much, but it sounds like it was a fixed fee they paid you and they you said they were bullish on it. Yeah, yeah, no, it was good. It was like a, a, a really good broadcast license. Oh, that's great. So you have, but so there's money at each stage. As we've talked, it seems like there's unexpected additional income that came in that wasn't necessarily like, hey, we just made a bunch more money. It was like, hey, yeah, we're gonna be able to pay ourselves better, but this gives us the opportunity to do this thing that would have been financially infeasible to maybe plan to do. But now that we have it, mm, okay. Like, and I'm curious how that pans out too. With like Netflix pays you the broadcast license fee and you have all those people did you have a, a surge in people buying dvds from the site due to netflix or did people watch it and they were sort of done yeah yeah, yeah that exact same that that happened the uh, we thought like when netflix was going to hit like we did think it was going to be big we didn't expect it to be as big but we did think that it would raise the digital sales across the board because a lot of times when and the physical sales and in physical, mm-hmm. um, because a lot of times when people watch something on Netflix and they really like it, they just say, "I watched this movie; it was great." Uh, they normally don't say, although sometimes they do, "I watched this movie; it was great; it's available on Netflix." They don't normally say where it came from. Right. So all this chatter is just kind of um, without the attachment of Netflix to it. In some t- c- cases, it is, but you know, mostly it's just people saying. I saw this movie. You should check it out. So with all, you know, with all the people talking about it, we knew that there was more interest. And we get, you know, we were still getting at that time, and still now, we getting a lot of people asking like wanting to know more, wanting more. And so we had this opportunity that we thought, you know, if we spend, we thought it would be 3 months. Okay, so it's <laughs> 3 months. We spend 2 or 3 months, we can give people more of the story, we can fill in more of the gaps we couldn't do in the film and do this this cool stuff. In the end it took longer, but you know, I, I guess sort of what you, you sort of your larger question was, you know, we were receiving, you know, license like uh, money from Netflix and other sources. I guess like it was sort of unexpected in, in some ways, mm-hmm. but expected. Like I think that we spent like all, you know, Kickstarter money and our own money making the film. Most, you know, theatrical films, whether it be docs or uh, narrative features, they get all their budget up front. Everyone gets paid. Right. And then if it makes money later, that's, you know, great. And that's also someone else's problem. You know? And it's also right. someone else's problem, a distributor's problem, to try to have that film make money after. Um, for us, we had put all that in in advance. So, like, the right. budget of the film was really low. And so we're, we were really depending on, throughout all the process, that the film would do well to each individual 
person, to each user, to each, you know, audience member would, that real people would purchase this. Otherwise, we would have lost three years of work. So it's sort of a sort of a risky business that we were in, and and many Canadian filmmakers don't do this. They they get paid in advance by through broadcast licenses, through um, government tax credits, tax credits, etc., like so that they can make the film. So it wasn't expected, but unexpected. Yeah. But, but also, it, it did allow us some freedom. And a lot of the opportunities that we ended up pursuing all through that kind of second year or year after release were things that are traditionally within distribution strategies of, of movies. You know, you go to international territories and, you know, you do broadcast screenings and you do educational uh, licenses and stuff like that. So a lot of it was exploiting a lot of traditional things, sometimes in untraditional manners. Uh, but things that we knew these opportunities existed, it was just you know, how large are they and how much work will they take for us to, you know, go and pursue given that it's just ourselves. So you, because you took on the distribution task yourself, that gave you the freedom to make all these choices, but also that burden you describe. I, I kind of wonder now, because you were out there in front of most of the people who made films and funded it on Kickstarter. Now there've been so many and, you know, I forget what the figure was at Sundance. It was some, you know, single digit percentage of films was double digit that had received some funding via Kickstarter uh, that were entered. So it's become kind of a big thing. Do you feel that what you did is now being pursued as a model by a lot of people or is it the subject matter and um, the approach you took idiosyncratic enough, you know, like especially in a movie about the video game uh, industry that it's hard to replicate what you did? Um, I think a lot of, a lot of, uh, filmmakers, but also distributors and consultants are following this model now. Like there was a point, like we were coming in into this sort of film industry. This is our first film Mm -hmm. with thinking that this is the way to do it because this is the way that made sense to us. And it seemed the easiest. It seemed like, Oh, going directly to people online and getting them excited about your work and showing them your work and asking them to be part of it. Doesn't that, it just made sense to us. The film industry at that time, you know, just prior to 2010, they, you know, people were convinced that it was falling apart, that it was broken, that yeah. nobody was making money anymore, no independent films were being made. Like it, the year before we went to Sundance, they, it was the least amount of films that had been sold to distributors. It, people were calling it the end. People were getting out of the business. And, and it is a business for a lot of people. Like, well a good select amount of people in the <laughs> film. And so I think that we did this project naively um, thinking that this is the best way to do it with our, you know, talents and skill sets. And now there are whole, there's a whole industry around replicating this. Oh, that's great. So you can pack, I was going to ask if you've become consultants yet. It sounds like you're, you haven't sort of said that, but it sounds like you've given advice to other filmmakers and, but, but that goes beyond what you're doing. There's people who now professionally help guide filmmakers through uh, through this process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit of a cottage industry opening up. Interesting. Some people are doing it and doing it well and Some aren't. Uh, others not so much. <laughs> uh, it's, it's kind of weird because I, I think that, that like we're just starting to see people that are taking some of these ideas and just starting to make them work. Mm-hmm. Like there's not uh, – there's a few films that have um, done this well. And and I think we're going to see more films doing this, especially independent films. And I guess you're also seeing, you know, big Hollywood films, too, trying to use more grassroots stuff and, and, and ways of reaching people now than the big ad buys that they used to do. So we're seeing sort of both. Yeah, we, we have consulted. That's the big part of this past year was consulting with filmmakers and also with companies 
um, about sort of what we were thinking about, about the, basically the whole idea that your film, you know, isn't just about releasing your film on the, you know, the theatrical release that is in New York or L.A. That's not where you're going to spend all your time. It's about the fact that your film is going to be searched and accessible and, you know, discovered by people over the long tail, the lifetime. And that's why we're still on this film is people are still discovering it. And and that's sort of a new way of looking at it because of the Internet. You know, you can Google Indie Game the movie and find find out about it and discover it or a friend mentions it, mentions it on Twitter. Historically, in, in the movie business, if you didn't hear about a film within the week that it was in the theater near you, it was over. But everything sort of changed. This is the interesting thing that Netflix is doing with TV series, too, and with original all the original production, like the fact that it's everything's discoverable and findable. Yeah. But, and I know you're going well beyond that, but I can, go to, I can go to Steam, I can go to iTunes, I can go to you directly, I can buy a DVD, I can go to, if there are video stores left somewhere in the world, I can probably go there and get one, I can get it from Netflix as a film, uh, you know, sent to me in the mail. Uh, you've given me so many ways to obtain it. More, you got the special edition if you're really into it. There's more for you. I'm I'm really into it. I bought that when you announced the special edition. <laughs> I bought. I've got my signed copy upstairs, pristine. No, it's unwrapped and watched. But, uh, but yeah, so it's sort of a, a different kind of model, and and it's a different. Like we've been talking about this recently, it's a different model for being a filmmaker. A lot of filmmakers would have had their next project as they were editing, and would be would have started to shoot the next thing mm-hmm. as their other their first film was in festivals, but because we treat this sort of in a different way. Um, we're not looking at the volume of films. We're looking at which films are going to be great and we can do a good job with and reach people yeah. in sort of a more select way. And, and that was kind of one of the goals of what we did was like, and how we did it was we wanted to kind of release it the way we wanted to release it and release it in a way that was right for the audience. But also as filmmakers, we wanted to kind of build an audience, not just for this film, but also for the next film. You know, we thought if we're going to be talking directly to our audience, let's, you know, kind of make direct contact with them and bring them along for the ride. So the real kind of big test of if this model works at large as a career move, you know, for for filmmakers, you know, over the lifetime is, you know, are we going to be able to take this audience that we built uh, into the next film? And, you know, how much of this momentum and interest will translate into you know, making it a little bit easier to get the next film done and the next film made and seen. And so that's kind of, I think that's kind of what, you know, 2014 will be about and 15 and 16 and because it never ends. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great thing. Every industry keeps reinventing itself. I'm finding this in publishing. It drives me a little nuts that every year and a half I have to completely recalibrate my understanding of what the methods of distributing words are basically. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like film has gone through, uh, you know, when, but the difference between when you started and now, even the way that film is projected in movie theaters has completely changed over that period of time. Oh, yeah. yeah, completely. And it'll probably change again next year. <laughs> That's right. Well, a 4K, we'll have 4K uh, TV displays. So here, okay, so final question. A uh, year ago, when we talked about it, it sounded like you were a little iffy about whether under Canadian labor law, if you were actually employers, if you would have been arrested for paying yourselves under the minimum wage for the first three years of work. Another <laughs> year in, do you feel like you finally exceeded that magical number and and, uh, and feel compensated for uh, for all this effort? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's it's definitely been worth it. Uh, you know, in in all measures, uh, basically. Like it's um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's 
it's been worth it. I, I think just the surprising thing was like we knew it would take over our lives, but we just didn't know it would take over our lives for so long. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> And, and all for good reasons. It's yeah, just, oh, completely. It, it just, uh, yeah. If you, you know, a year ago we probably said, "Oh yeah, we'll we'll be we'll be done by Christmas," you yeah. know. And now yeah. we stop making those claims. Like, it's like eh. just, it'll, it, it's, well, it's just the new reality. Of, it is the new reality. And, yeah, so. But you control – the neat part is you still control 100% of what you're doing, which is amazing. I mean that's that's the thing is any point in the past, even if you'd gotten to some mark, you would have said, this is too big. We can't afford this next step. We need $20,000, $50,000, $100,000 to do this next thing. So we're going to take this fee from whomever, a distributor, and move on or we're going to pass this on to a lab, whatever it's going to be. In this case, you've – guys have kept control four years in you still own all this you really haven't given away very much at all no no no, we haven't given away much at all i mean some licensing i mean netflix can show it but that's not you didn't give away you know you can still distribute and sell it's a pretty amazing position to be in and i'm ecstatic to see what your next thing is what's going to accidentally consume the next four years of your lives so please (laughs) please keep in touch yeah oh yeah definitely will yeah thanks for having us yeah thanks for coming back thanks glenn Let's take a break from this anniversary episode to talk about one of our long-term sponsors, Smile Software's Text Expander. We're human beings, and we should not be engaged in repetitive tasks. That's what computers are for. That's why I love Text Expander. It's a utility from Smile for Mac OS X that I've been using for years. Text Expander lets me type a few keystrokes and plop in anything from a web address to my phone number to a large block of boilerplate text. Text Expander watches your keystrokes, which trigger expansions, and those expansions have become ever more sophisticated as the program has matured. Years ago, they integrated AppleScript with internet features, so I can have a URL on my clipboard and type slash bit.ly and have it use my bit.ly account information to create a custom short URL and then paste it at the current text insertion point. The newest version brings a fill-in snippets feature that lets you make form letters that can have multiple choice pop-up menus and other fields, so you can start from a template and create a custom response with just a handful of keystrokes. You can find out more about Text Expander and Smile's other products at smilesoftware.com slash ND. That's ND like new disruptors. Take a look and let them know we sent you. Now, let's get back to the celebrations. The last year has seen some profound changes in electronic publishing and long-form journalism, and I check in with Evan Ratliff to see what this year has brought to The Atavist. Evan Ratliff is the editor, chief executive, and co-founder of Atavist, which produces The Atavist, a publication of long-form journalism, and The Creativist Platform. When we first spoke a year ago, the platform was relatively new as a standalone product, and they were still feeling the ground under their feet. The Atavist has a longer history and has continued to develop over this time as well. Evan, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be back. I thought it would be fun to check in um, because you're one of the very early guests on the show, and uh, you know I model. I don't. I would say I don't model my life exactly after after Atavis, but I have uh, some parallel interests. So I follow very closely what you guys are up to. And yeah, we have a lot of common. Interests. We have a lot of things in common. And I thought a year into this, now that you've got uh, another year under your belt as a platform company, which is a very different sort of business than being a publisher, um, that we could touch base and, and say what's happened in the last year. So the direction you've taken is. You've done all the work 
with The Atavist as a publication to build a platform that had multiple different ways of publishing the same long-form story. And the create mm-hmm. and Creativist, which is your new very clever name for the platform, uh, this is the instantiation of it as something that other companies can use. So how has the last year gone as you've developed along as a software company um, distinct from your continuing efforts as a as a publication? Well, it's been interesting. I mean, in the first, you know, year, two years of our existence, you know, we sort of had the software and we would we would occasionally license it to people on the side. Um, but this was the year that we really sort of turned into a full on, you know, almost like a tech startup on one side of things where we're we're really like creating a product and then we're it's in beta and now it's open to everyone. So um, that experience has been, uh, I would say, different and interesting. And we, we always do the publishing as well. So um, they're kind of like they run in parallel and then they intersect at different points. I think it's certainly uh, it's challenging for me personally because it's not like running that type of software company is not necessarily in my wheelhouse. I feel like I have some expertise to bring to bear to it, but I think we've learned a lot uh, in trying just to get out the first iteration of the of the actual product creativist, which has now you know been out for a few months. It's uh, and alongside this, you're still running the publication as you've got a, a monthly long form effort. It it feels to me like there's this great parallel between between the two efforts. I mean, obviously, are from a business standpoint because you put all the work in to create something that would create a, a great publication platform, and then you're turning that into a product you can sell. But there was this idea when you launched that people weren't confident that there was going to be enough of a market for this sort of long-form journalism. And I feel like you have proved over – gosh, are you now three years into this? Two and a we'll half? Be three, we'll be three years in January. Oh, my gosh. That's fantastic. And you've been publishing this – you know. Thousands upon thousands of words every month for almost three years now, and uh, have have people been eating crow? Let's say when you you know you started this long form was like yeah it's this old thing everything's fast. There was some discussion of it, and now everybody's doing long form. So did, have you have you felt like people have come over to your side about this? I th- yeah, I mean I do feel like that when we started a couple of ideas that. It wasn't like people we're not going to claim now that people like made fun of us you know we got actually like a lot of nice attention when we launched too but you know there was i think a lot of skepticism about whether there was really a valuable place uh for long form in the digital world i think that was an open question you know five years ago four years ago even um and that question is now answered i mean it's it's actually insane the number of places that are trying to get into this. And now we actually hear from them because we have the platform upon which they can do it. So the sort of range of like companies to publications to individuals who kind of want to do this stuff is just like exploding in some sense. So on that front, uh, you know, we feel validated. I think uh, similarly on the sort of like multimedia front, I think that's where we feel most validated because people really did make fun of that stuff as like the new CD-ROM, blah, blah, blah. And I think you're starting to see that it's it's not actually about sort of like quote-unquote multimedia publishing. It's just design. It's about adding high design to digital features and pulling in uh, you know, video and all the other aspects in a way that makes sense. So, you know, we feel good about where those two things are. It's uh, There's been a sea change in that thinking, I think, because uh, maybe – because so much cruft was larded onto most of the stories we're reading on web pages. And your idea with, with the Atavis was these are stories you're selling on their own merits. These are small books, essentially, or something like it. So there's not a necessity. A, you're not putting advertising all over the place. It's not an advertising medium. But I think for some people, that meant it had no value. Because if you can't put ads on it, how are you going to make enough money 
to sell something like this because that was the model that was – people weren't selling uh, medium-length or long-form journalism as stories in any real quantity when you started. And I felt like you guys broke through and proved that that was possible. Yeah, I think so. I mean, on that front, I I do always try to be careful not to sort of like oversell it. I mean, I think selling things individually for $2 and $3 is a hard business. It's a very hard business. And so, you know, we have even in the last year, like we've experimented with all sorts of things, including we did a sponsored story, which we, you know, opened up for free and we built in some like very clever sponsorship into it that was interactive and sort of fit with like our level of design. And so, you know, I think one of the big humps was just sort of like proving that people wanted to read this stuff digitally. And I think there's still we're still like heavily in the area of experimentation in terms of like affording it in a sustainable way because when you sell things individually the thing that you very quickly find is that it's hit driven and so you get a hit that pays for a bunch of things that aren't hits and that's difficult it's a difficult business for us uh even now i mean obviously we keep it going and we're we're doing fine but you know we're always looking to sort of like what is the ne- is there a way to to like iterate on that to make it more viable than it is. Right, because you're still you, – you have a subscription problem even though each of your long-form articles is a different thing. I realize you offer subscriptions now and have um, since actually shortly after we talked, I think, a year ago. Uh, so people can subscribe and just get everything and there was a, a demand for that. You had said uh, then – so you were fulfilling a demand from people who wanted to be completists and just get everything you published because they liked the approach. But you suffer from – I mean I see this with the magazine that um, you're as good as the last thing you published and the next thing is you don't know what the sales will be. You know, I've got recurring subscriptions but people come and go yep. as they like a given issue. You put out a couple things that people – it can be the best journalism in the world. They can be the best writing in the world but you put out two or three things that people aren't interested in and maybe you've lost their peace of mind um, for for people who are watching what you're doing. But I also expect – that uh, because each of these is a standalone story, you don't have – you have to market each one of them separately, but you don't necessarily have that loss of people over time from from month to month. Right. That's the sort of mix of challenges. I think, yeah, we have subscriptions now and people can – you know, they can become a member basically where they can get everything including the backlist and, you know – by by dollars, it's a really good deal. And we have, you know, yearly subscriptions and things like that. But the churn, you know, in the digital world, the churn for that sort of thing can be pretty high because you're just a click away from canceling your subscription. If you say, oh, I didn't read this month, maybe I'll cancel or you get a reminder and you decide. So like you're saying, subscriptions are, are tough. Single sales offer this other challenge, which is each one we have to say, OK, you know, how are we going to go out and market this? Who, who do we need to get an excerpt with? And, you know, we have to kind of like crank up the machinery every time to make it happen. And it's also a little bit of witchcraft in terms of what does sell. I mean, sometimes we think something's going to sell and it doesn't. So, you know, I think there are all sorts of challenges in there and it's sort of like pick your poison. And then if you say, you know, as we have said, like, let's try sponsorship. I think that that our first experiment with it was great. But then, you know, how far are you edging towards advertising? Do you need one every time? You know, it's like anywhere you turn, it's it's not easy. So anyone who's like jumping into long form because they think it's like a easy business is probably uh, in for some pain. Yeah, and with long form, it's you know, there's a million pieces of individual news you can report on at 500 to even let's like, say 1500 words very easily almost every day, and that's why there are so many news sites and people writing up or some people writing up the same story a thousand times in different sites every day. But when you get to the kind of journalist journalism that you're pursuing, 
you there's a there's a very particular form you're looking for. There's a particular kind of story, and then there's a particular kind of writer who can pull it off. So you have all of these parameters, even to find the thing that fits, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we spend a lot of time trying to to figure out which stories are are good for us, and we do very few also. So we're only you know we're expanding into books next year, but right now we're only doing we do one a month, and those stories have to be very carefully chosen and hopefully the writers can deliver and, you know, we, we vet them pretty well. The hope is that by pursuing those types of stories that are unique, that require someone to go out in the world and talk to people that are narrative based. So they have characters and things like that, that they will have a sort of, you know, long, uh, a greater value and also a kind of longer life. I mean, we've had several stories that have been optioned as movies and, you know, we feel like we're trying to get value out of each one we produce over the life of it, not just sort of we'll launch it and sell a bunch and see what happens. Yeah, that's that the long tail benefit from things that are not precisely perishable, right? That some of these stories, they're not completely non-timely. Some of them have a hook, I realize, that is time, that's uh, time-based. But a lot of what you've published will be just as interesting in two years or ten years. I mean, I can read The Orchid Thief today, and it's no less interesting because it happened in the past. It's exactly as interesting, and, and it seems like that's kind of what you're trying for here are stories that that are rooted but are not necessarily perishable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you should be able to pick up stories of ours from the first year, from almost 3 years ago and and still find them to be to be great reads. I think, you know, of course that creates another problem which is it's hard to get people's attention when you're not on top of the news, when you're not saying, you know, there's so much you know, current events news, and that's what drives the sort of cycle of what people read. So, you know, that makes it harder, but we feel like over the lifetime of it, it's uh, it's more valuable in that way. Well, and this makes sense, too. So as we, we talked back about creativists, that having a platform is great because a platform, despite the work, I mean, suddenly you're a software company, right? You know, that was the joke at Amazon. I worked there in the early days, and even then it was apparent to me it was a software company masquerading as a thing that that delivered stuff, but <laughs> that the real problem was the software side. Delivering stuff was legit. Logistics and people had solved some of those things, and there were pricing and you know marketing and whatever. But but Amazon has, I think, turned out to be a software company that delivers a lot of stuff. Uh, and and it's not that you guys were a software company in hiding, but you're exposing the software to the world. Then you have the support issue. Then you have people who are your bosses at some level who are not in house, and that must be a different relationship. How, how do you how is it working with clients who you know ask you for things, demand things from you, or mad if things don't get delivered, or happy when they are? <laughs> It's uh it's interesting. I <laughs> different mean dance. <laughs> uh yeah, it's it's up and down. It's certainly different than than interacting with readers. You know, readers get mad, but uh and maybe they say like they're mad that, you know, they didn't like the story. Uh but when someone's paying you to use software, you know, they have widely varying expectations about uh, the level of the software and what it can do. So, you know, we have something that we th- we believe is like very unique and is actually like incredibly affordable, you know, in the way that like everyone talked about New York Times Snowfall, like you can do that kind of stuff in days for almost for incredibly little money. Right. And so, you know, on the other hand, anytime anyone's paying you any money to use your software, they are mad if something doesn't work, if something's not where they thought it was. So, you know, you have to, we have really good support people that work here in the office and we have really wonderful engineers and we just try to try to manage that. And sometimes we do larger projects and then, you know, those are a whole different a whole different game where people launch their whole publication on the platform and we have some com- of those coming up next year. It's really fascinating to watch platform development. And, and speaking as someone who is maintaining a platform, someone else, you know, 
a brilliant programmer created the platform that I feel sometimes like I inherited at the magazine. Like I, my my uncle mm-hmm. Uncle Marco uh, gave this to me in his will, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, I have to shepherd this and keep it alive because it's a great it's a great platform. But I understand on the, the back end all too well like how many moving pieces there are, things outside your control, integrating with commerce. Integrating with the App Store and meeting Apple's requirements and keeping up to date as they make changes that are outside of your control. And I look at – I feel like what I did at the magazine is uh, – or what Marco did, I should say, and what we're continuing is um, irreproducible because of the startup cost and because he could eat the cost as a programmer from his own time that removed that – that aspect of it, and he, and he had enough of a draw to bring in subscribers. I see other publications starting, and they need a platform. Um, and it's hard to be a platform only company like uh, 29th Street Publishing and Type Engine and other folks who are, uh, it's a uh, it's Glide, I think. There's a number of companies mm-hmm. that are platform only trying to deliver a relatively low monthly and per app cost to publications that want to start up. And I think that's a hard. Uh, road to hoe too, because on that side, you're 100% dependent on delivering the right experience month after month to all these customers who will have choices and can switch out from under you, depending on how portable stuff is. So you guys are in this, let's say, uh, you know, I, I won't say it's wonderful. I don't know all your finances, but it's wonderful in the sense <laughs> that you can put your eggs in both baskets. You need the platform to publish the stuff you want to do. The stuff you are publishing is becomes a mainstay and re- recurring income once it's published. Income continues to come in from that. And I feel like you may be in a position better than anybody to balance the two. Do you feel like that from the inside that, that this balancing game helps between those two kind of buckets of, of revenue or buckets of, of company type? Yeah, on my good days, uh, <laughs> I would say that I, I, I think there is a lot of value in the fact that we do both things and, it, and it's, it's actually incredibly helpful to the software to have basically a client sitting in the office who has demands every day and really is working with it. So it's not just testing. It's like we're putting out a magazine on this thing. And so it has to work in certain ways. I think, you know, I'm also cognizant of the sort of broader, uh, you know, startup approach to things, which is, you know, to tackle one thing and do it well. And I think, I think the biggest challenge for us is is simplifying. Like our platform, I mean, we've really gotten very excited about what it can do and what people can use it for, um, partly because it does, does an incredible array of, of things and it, it solves all of these problems. But it's also, you know, the really hard problem is just simplifying things so that people find it, you know, intuitive and people understand how they can use it and they're not confused and they're not lost. And I think that is sort of like, the design challenge for all of these software programs. It's like making something, you know, you can reproduce something that does all these things. I think, you know, a good programmer can do that, but it's it's really sort of like the the feel of it. And we hope that we have an advantage in that sense because we work with it so closely, because we are also publishers, we understand what's going into it. It's not it's not an abstract tool. You had a while to mature the software before you released it to other people because you're eating your dog food every day. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it's, I mean, this thing is, it's beyond road tested. Like it's, it's, it's been through the ringer <laughs> for, for, you know, everything that we want and need. So, um, you know, hopefully that's something that other people will, will benefit from. Well, I will check back in in another year and, and see how it's going, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing another 12 covers on uh, com and, and seeing how many companies are signed up with Creativist. Thanks for checking in. Yeah, thanks. I, I'll talk to you next year, I hope. Well, publishing's still in quite a bit of flux, and we're all trying to figure it out. That includes me, as you heard. Now, for a bit of a pick-me-up, let's talk to somebody who knows how to put the perk into your morning. 
Tony Konesny is better known as Tonks, T-O-N-X, his nom de brewing. And you can find him at tonks.org, where he and a bunch of colleagues run a coffee roasting and delivery service. And that may sound like something that is not unique in this planet. And yet what Tonks is up to is, is kind of his own thing. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to have you back. And, um, you know, I have to confess at the outset, I, I'm not sure if I confessed this last year, I, I love coffee and I can't drink very much of it. But I have, I've, have drunk your coffee and I quite like it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I, love, uh, I love getting appreciation from people who, uh, who don't actually uh, have the habit. That's, uh... I drink caffeine. It's just co- coffee. But everybody I know, it's like I swear I see your bags all over the place uh, because, uh, you know, we're part of this, this interesting milieu. It's between podcasting and the Macintosh world and blogging. Like you've got this, this circle in which uh, you know so many people and you and I personally overlap with so many people that there's um, – it, everyone I know is like a Tonk subscriber is what it feels like. So your business model, when we talked a year ago, uh, you were about a year into the business. And you had a very simple offering and it was, you know, you're sourcing beans, roasting them, sending them out. And that's kind of the deal. It's like a mail order service. But I don't think that you were ever so focused on the coffee making part. It felt to me like you were trying to get a consistent product. Is that still the case a year later? Are you really focused on delivering a consistent coffee bean? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, our, our focus, uh, from from the very beginning is is sort of I, I mean I've been through the model of opening coffee bars and and wholesale roasting and and it sort of felt like there was something a little bit broken about the way that uh, most of my colleagues were doing business on the high end of specialty coffee and that we weren't doing a very good job of bringing consumers along for the ride and so you know uh, far from kind of you know, looking at this trend of like subscription commerce and e-commerce, I think uh, we've we've always been pigeonholed since the beginning as as being, you know, just kind of the equation is you know apply coffee to this uh, to this other established business model. Um, but for us, it's really always been about you know what what's the way you know starting from zero to create a, a better experience for people that want to become uh, coffee connoisseurs but don't necessarily need to buy into all the trappings of what uh, sort of high-end specialty coffee has become over the last few years. And you're not trying to charge a, a fortune. You're trying to charge a fair price that lets you pay your suppliers well, lets you actually pay yourself and deliver something that people can act, can afford. I mean, this isn't, it's not, this isn't civet poop coffee. This isn't like the most extreme experience, which are getting more and more extreme. I'm hearing the crazy amounts per pound that people will pay now for coffee. You're trying to deliver something that seems to me it's um, an exquisite experience, but you're not attempting to be the highest end, most, um, you know, rarefied thing. You want to make a good bean and get it to people uh, and, and make a buck on it. Right. I, I think we, we want to try to stay away from, you know, gimmicks to differentiate our product. You know, we just kind of quietly are doing all the things that we think are the best practices in the industry and um, supported by a business model that lets us, I think, you know, go the extra mile in terms of, you know, both the quality of what we source, how we approach the roasting, and really, you know, the kind of customer service that we back it up with and education and brew tips and this goes down to this to sourcing too, doesn't it? Because I think a year ago you had started to send people on far flung missions. I think I think you'd had a reasonable amount of that. In the last year, have you become closer to your sources? Do you have people traveling constantly to try to 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 buy um, 
I'm not sure what you call it, bean harvests? Yeah. So, so we actually, uh, uh, Ryan Brown is our green coffee buyer, and uh, this year was a pretty big travel year for him. Uh, he just got back from a trip to uh, Kenya and Ethiopia, which I think uh, he'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's probably our fourth trip to Africa this year. And <laughs> wow. we've made a ton of trips to Latin America and you know, we're, we're kind of in constant contact with the producers that we work with there. And so that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a big part of what we do. We don't wear it on our sleeve too much. It's, it's really just about, uh, you know, getting the best coffee and it's something that's in our wheelhouse. So. And how does having this direct relationship and visiting the, the growers affect what you do as a roaster or, or as a business? Um, well, I think, you know, part of, Part of our model is, you know, we're not we're not putting out a whole product line of of things for people to, you know, pick and choose, and you know, we kind of direct people's exploration a little bit, and we're we're focused on, you know, whatever we think is uh, the you know best available coffee at a given moment or in a given season, and so we have a lot of flexibility there in terms of, you know, not having to sort of you know check off these boxes in terms of our product line. And that lets us, I think, do have a little more flexibility with producers and see, you know, what what they have that that they're, you know, really excited about, and you know, we can kind of uh, hedge our bets in a few different places, and you know, never have to feel like we're, you know, we've got kind of sloppy seconds or whatever that we need to <laughs> give to our customers. You know, we can always focus on really um, the best stuff. So. Well, that's the the thing that's fascinating is um, I may have mentioned this a year ago. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on a podcast before. My my dad used to make granola for a living, and uh, which and he was not a hippie. It was a really nice little <laughs> business in Eugene, Oregon, and he was not a hippie. And, I, I uh, don't believe you. That you sounds, don't believe that, me. that sounds very hippie. My dad is a very moderate liberal guy, uh, and uh, but it was fascinating to watch him work with um, as the business grew in scale, and it, it got fairly. Uh, big before he sold uh, his part out many years ago, um, watching him say negotiate with hazelnut growers and like buy the entire harvest from a hazelnut grower, you know, pay in advance and they would sort of contract and there could be some vagaries. But the hazelnut growers loved it because they were contracted. They knew they were working with somebody who actually cared about their nuts too. We're trying to emphasize them as part of the product. Do you develop that sort of relationship with the with the suppliers? Yeah, it's it's definitely a lot of uh, forward contracts, and I think that's you know that's been sort of the trend in the in the top end of specialty coffee for a while. That uh, these direct relationships let us you know guarantee that we're getting a high quality of product and create some uh, some buffers um, for the producers that you know don't really exist on the on the open market. So um, right now, coffee prices are at. Uh, one of the lowest lows they've been at for uh, oh, several years. Yeah. So things and you know, we, we've heard from producers in Guatemala that just, you know, even the cost of sending pickers out to harvest is uh, high to the point that it, you know, some farmers are, are not even bringing in their crop this year. So, Oh, they're trying to force some scarcity or well, they, they're probably, I mean, they're not making money, but it will also force some scarcity if it's not at that level. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, people will sort of, you know, make bets and wait and see. They can, you know, harvest and process coffee, hold it, hope the prices change or, you know, that the quality differential is enough to, you know, put them in a profitable place. But yeah, it's a, it's, it's a difficult <laughs> small business running a coffee farm. Uh, and I think that, 
you know, the, the equation for, for paying, you know, much higher prices outside of the commodity system for quality is, is the best bet that uh, a lot of producers who, who have the, the means to, to focus on quality, um, to, to get away from that system. And we're seeing more and more of that. Well, and I'm assuming, uh, you know, like, I don't know how much about your business you like to talk about in terms of numbers, but I'm assuming it's another year. You're still in business. You're offering, <laughs> you're offering more kinds of options. And it seems like maybe you have even a little more staff. There are more people involved. So one would imply that either you have really happy investors, if there's outside investors putting more money in, or that the scale of business has actually grown. But I, I know there's issues with scale. How have you handled getting bigger and getting more attention? Um, you know, I think in terms of, of the, the growth on the like customer side and, and in terms of our, you know, product line, uh, it's, it's been really healthy. Um, I don't think we feel like we've had to cut any corners that, you know, the more we grow, the more access to coffee we have, the better coffees we're able to bring in, the more, you know, uh, resources we have to focus on, you know, how we do our production. And so I think that, you know, that, that side of it, uh, growth has been great for us. Um, on the staffing side, you know, anytime you add more cooks to the kitchen and, um, you know, the complexity of just kind of the, the day-to-day operations increases. And, and I think that that's, uh, you know, it's, it's the, it's, it's interesting the the, the challenges that you expect when you start a business are kind of the, you know, the thrill of victory and agony of defeat of, of the, the big risks that you take. Um, and, you know, the longer we do this, the more I think Nick and I feel like it's, you know, the, the big things are easy. Um, you know, whether we succeed or fail, you, you do a big initiative and, you know, everyone on the team is on board and we, you know, we have good postmortems about that. And, um, but it's, it's the small little day-to-day stuff or the side projects that, that you you know have to deprioritize and stuff that really keep you up at night. So that's uh, that's been the biggest uh, the biggest uh, learning curve of the last year is just uh, you know managing the the small anxieties. Oh, interesting. Well, I wanted to ask about that too because you started out with a very very laser beam focused set of offerings, and uh, you know it was sort of I think. I think you had when we talked. You really had kind of one thing, or maybe there were two things. There was this what I think is now called, or was called then the standard, nineteen bucks for twelve ounces every other uh, per, nineteen dollars a month for twelve ounces every other week. A fortnightly shipment. I'm very well aware of fortnightly. <laughs> uh, and then and then you had I think at the time you did have the double, which is thirty four dollars. So you get twenty four ounces every other week. Uh, but now you've gone a little broke, and I'm always interested in how that happens because. Uh, you, one respects the focus, but clearly there are things you are missing and people are asking you for. And these have also uh, – you've not just retained them, but you've expanded a little bit over time. So how did you develop these other offerings when you had such a you know, very simple and rigid you know, central idea about what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of you know what what goes in the bag, um, you know, we haven't we haven't strayed too much from that focus, um, and you know, we started doing some limited offerings, and we've been experimenting with a blend, and that's been really fun. But you know, the the core product that goes in the bag uh, hasn't really lost its focus, but we've definitely tried to 
accommodate, you know, what we've learned from people's consumption habits. So, you know, we have customers that, you know, make, you know, two pots of coffee a day every day at home. And we have some people that, you know, only make coffee on the weekends or when they have guests or so we, we've tried to put things into place in our plan selection to accommodate for that. And then we have sort of really easy options for people to pause their subscription whenever they're getting a little backed up or they're going to be going away. Um, we have a boost feature. So if people need a extra bag on a given week, um, that that's become really easy to do. And then if people, you know, need kind of an emergency re up, uh, we're usually able to accommodate that too. So it's, it's less about, um, changing the, the core of our product than just kind of, you know, finding ways to fit people's, uh, habits. So another year in, um, I'm really fascinated with how you deal with yield and, and these new offerings obviously give you more variety of what people are ordering. So, I mean, you've got a, I can order 15 pounds. I'm an office. I can <laughs> order 15 pounds every two weeks. It's pretty good. You know, it's actually pretty, uh, that's what's nice. It's a pretty good deal. So, you know, the, you've got a variety of offerings and you clearly have people, you're offering this. That means people asked for it, which means people are ordering at that level, clearly. So... Coffee is an inexact science. I know it's an art. There are scientific aspects of it and temperature and so forth. And it's an art when you're trying to get the right things roasted. There's some yield, right? You buy a certain number of green beans. You do your roasting. You do all this process. And then you have stuff you're going to send out. How in God's name do you match? I mean, you've got the benefit of having subscribers. So you know you've got some spreadsheet somewhere, a (laughs) number on a giant LCD monitor on the wall that says we're producing 4,372 pounds this week or whatever. But how in God's name do you match that input, the, the advance ordering, the shipping, the input, the roasting, the yield of that? to your output and not wind up with too little or such a huge amount more that you've, you know, you've made a financial uh, disaster out of it. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, it's a lot of spreadsheets, but, uh, and, and I think, you know, Ryan, our green coffee buyer could, could give you a very lengthy dissertation <laughs> on this, but I'm going to, I'm going to say that it's been a lot of luck. Actually. I think that we, you know, we, we made some projections and we had a model and, and we've tried to, you know, stick pretty close to that. And so, you know, there hasn't been, you know, any crazy stagnation. There hasn't been any, you know, wild spikes in growth. You know, we, we definitely have some, some tricks up our sleeve when, you know, when things are a little unexpected and, and we need to, you know, bring in more coffee or, or move some coffee that we contracted that's not arriving on time. And, um, so there's, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, juggling that goes on behind the scenes but uh but ryan's a pretty uh gifted juggler so but this is nice because you're not a you're not a coffee shop and you're not a conventional roaster in the sense that you don't have people who pull up one day and say i need 500 pounds or nobody shows up that week you have a a a remarkably good sense of a fairly close amount of what you've got to deliver in any period of time which must be a really weird place to be in as a coffee maker because a coffee roaster because this is a very, I mean, there's very few people outside of some giant organizations that are in your shoes, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, any, any model you look at in coffee has, you know, has its sort of pros and cons and challenges. And I think we, you know, we sort of, you know, came up with our model, um, you know, cause we thought it would, you know, deliver the best kind of experience to, you know, a, a customer that we think, you know, the other companies don't do as, as good a job at serving. So that's, uh, 
you know, that that's sort of held to be true for us. I think, you know, over time we'll, we'll definitely, uh, branch out into more projects and, and things that'll, uh, add complexity, but, um, you know, hopefully never at a compromise to the quality of the product and the, the quality of service that we try to deliver to our home home users. So, well, it's hard to stay focused, and that's the that's the great danger. I'm sure. Um, how many pitches do you get a week for Tony? If you could really just work with us on this, I know it would be a big thing for you. Yeah, I mean, we still, you know, it, it's we're we're really good at saying no to stuff, uh, but it, it's it's hard. Um, you know, there's definitely opportunities that that come up that. Um, you know, seem like they'd be really good for our bottom line, but, um, you know, less good for our focus. And so I think we've, you know, we, we try to have a, a balance there. We'll certainly listen to things that come on the table, but if it, it, if it changes, you know, who we are as a company and, you know, dilutes our commitment to, you know, our customers or producers, it's probably, you know, something that's going to be really easy to say no to. That's a, an excellent, well, excellent advice to end on is, is just say no, but it's, but it's true. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think this is a great theme is almost everybody I talk to who's figured out some path on their own, like you guys have it saying no is as important as saying yes, sometimes more important. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's good. Well, thanks Tony for coming back and telling us about where we're at now. Awesome. My pleasure. A year ago, Chris Anderson had an enviable job. He was editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, uh, one of the largest distributed publications uh, of its kind. And uh, he had this little side project that involved things that fly around. And um, somewhere, <laughs> shortly after we inter- recorded our interview over a year ago, he decided to make the side project into his full-time job and, and became the head of 3D Robotics, a company he'd started and has expanded quite a bit in the last year. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Glenn. It's been a funny year for you, right? I mean, we talked just before. Like, you, you know, I think you knew in your head you were going to do this, and we were talking right on the verge of that. And then you made this announcement, surprised people. But, but people have been watching 3D robotics have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, um, you know, it's it was uh, it's one of those kind of follow your heart moments. But um, I think um, so. A year ago. Um, we were probably raising venture capital and, um, you know, so I had started the company to maybe two or, two or three years earlier with a co-founder, um, but it was a side project, as you say, it was just, you know, kind of, you know, trundling along, it was kind of a hobby and, uh, my co-founder was, um, building something down in San Diego and he would send me pictures every now and then and the pictures <laughs> just kept getting, kept getting more and more impressive, bigger in spaces, you know, robotic machinery, people in uniforms, a, an accountant, a bookkeeper, you know, and it was like, wow. Wow, this is really a company. And uh, um, eventually, uh, we looked at the books, and I was like, "Holy cow! That's like millions of dollars of revenues." And um, at that point, um, you know, the sort of the uh, the uh, the notion that maybe I should <laughs> take this more seriously <laughs> uh, kicked in, and we uh, we raised a, a Series A VC round, um, and I took over as CEO and uh, went all in, as they say. Well, and you and you had or even by that point, even a year ago, you had multi you had, uh, operations in Tijuana, you had operations in San Diego, you had a, a pe- you know a number of people working for you, but it, you had this transition point that it seems like you had to recognize yourself that you're going from supporting hobbyists and making kits and then complete things to actually having a business where you make drones, where you're actually manufacturing these personal drones as a product. Not it's not the outcome of kits or something like that. This is really what you do. 
Yeah, it was it was you know one of those. It was very gradual and organic. You know, it started with like you know me just kind of messing around with my kids with Lego and stuff like that. Then I set up a website called DIY Drones where I was like, hey, here's some dumb questions, and people started answering the questions, and then people had their own questions, and and it's like, hey, let's some trade some design files. Then people were like, uh, hey, that sounds really cool, but I don't know how to solder. You know, could you please do that for me? And it was like, okay, here's a bag of parts. And then it was like, hey, but I still don't know how to solder. <laughs> and it was like, okay, we'll put the bar the parts in a box. And it's like, okay, what do I put the box in? And it's like, okay, well, here's a drone. And it just kind of kept kept going on, and we realized that, um, that the only thing that the technology was in place, that the you know that you know basically smartphone gut sensors and such, and open source software had made all this stuff easy, and the only thing standing in the way was complexity, and the only way to really kind of you know take complexity out of robotics was to, you know, make a proper consumer electronics company, mm-hmm. and you know over the past year we've basically gone from bags of parts to you know we're not quite at iPhone you know level, but that's kind of where we're headed, and to see how simple we can make you know really advanced technology it's fascinating to me because the drone market seems to have gone it's like exploded um you've been you were telling me before we started recording about the scale of the thing but i i I just think the the sophistication of what people were seeing just kind of flying around and were toys not i don't even want to say three years ago two years ago um the sophistication has gone up it seems like orders of magnitude in the space of two years yeah. So it just just a you know definitional thing. You know what a what a drone is is a, it's a what we, you know it's an aircraft that can fly itself. Um, so we've had you know radio control helicopters and, and airplanes for 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 years. But what the what, what drones have is autopilots with GPS and things like that. And so it takes the skill the, the the need for skill out of the equation. And you know so the ability for regular people to put like a quadcopter or some other vehicle in the air with a GoPro camera without having to you know learn how to fly or worry about you know worry about crashing and you know it still happens but but by and large it's it's this kind of thing that regular people can do and instead rather than thinking about piloting you think about you know the video you think about you know the the, the picture you're trying to to get and that um and that in you know those those necessary technologies the autopilots the gps the wireless the gopro cameras etc have all really come together over the past you know year or two such that you can buy a, a box you know from amazon today for less than a, you know a thousand dollars it just works you just you just plug it in you know turn it on and poof you've got a you've got a you know a drone hovering overhead with a gopro focused on you well, you know, at the, at, uh, the magazine, we ran a feature uh, by Eli Sanders, Pulitzer Prize winning Eli Sanders, uh, earlier this year, a long-form piece he wrote about uh, the growth of domestic drones, both for government and private use in the United States, and uh, the complicated regulatory issues involved in uh, privacy issues and, and the uncertain thicket through which people currently are wading through. But one of the interesting parts, almost a side part of it, was how just uh, simple or teams of not hobbyists, but people at universities, uh, I guess, you know, a team, I guess they were not hobby teams, but they're like sponsored teams at universities could get equipment that previously would have been considered military grade and assemble it and in a relatively small amount of time produce things that could navigate complicated routes in that just as with the autonomous vehicle test that um, DARPA funded uh, for self-driving vehicles, where that seemed like a pipe dream. And then suddenly we have Google cars driving up and down 101 in California all the time. Um, it seems like drones went through the same acceleration. It went from uh, this is a military-grade product to we can mess around with it at consumer level to you can buy this thing and it works. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's not, you know, it's not just university students. I mean, you know, children, um, you know, you can, these things ought to take off by themselves, follow, um, you know, pre-planned uh, mission by themselves, land by themselves, the camera, they can follow, you know, an object, you can put a, you know, a phone in your pocket, and they'll follow you, keeping the camera focused on you. They, um, you know, um, increasingly, they have the ability to follow the topology. Um, they can stay under the clouds, they, if they get out of range, they can come back home. Um, this is, this is beyond um, most military, actually, military um, drones typically are, are piloted um, for a number of reasons, including safety. Um, these can. Oh, wait, they're not. Auto- they're not actually autonomous. They're unmanned, but they're not autonomous. Exactly, the remotely piloted is the exact phrase. And you know whether that's you know a guy actually you know with a joystick or a guy just clicking on a on, you know on, on a mouse with a mouse on the screen on a map. Um, they typically are piloted, whereas increasingly these consumer level drones um, are not. Um, they you know you can do things like you know you have a tablet or a phone, and you just you know draw a path with your finger. Or point to something, and it just kind of figures out the rest yourself. So, because they're small and light and cheap, they don't have to kind of, you know, go through the same human oversight um, that the military ones. And as a result, they can be more autonomous, more advanced. They're not carrying sidewinder missiles, so that helps as well. There's less offensive capability on private drones. Indeed, indeed, they they, <laughs> they they tend to be under two pounds, and you know, I mean, there's you know, not to say there aren't there aren't there aren't safety issues, but yes. but this is in the same way that you know when you think about it, the analogy I always use is like you know the personal computer moment. You know, the PC was you know started off as the worst computer you could buy, the Apple II or whatever, but it was the only computer that, that you or I could could naturally buy. And it's like you know, well, why would I want an Apple II when I could buy a mainframe? Is and the answer is well, you know, you, you're not <laughs> going to be able to get that mainframe. But this little this little computer today, you know, the bet was it would get better faster and indeed it did and that's the same thing that same thing happened of course with the internet versus telecoms and it's now happening in robotics with uh, you know the bottoms up consumer drones versus the top-down military ones well let, let's talk about you for a moment too because it's been a big transition you were working for a you know giant multinational media corporation before that you worked for other giant multinational media corporations uh, and these were jobs and paychecks and and layers of management above you and even as editor-in-chief of wired you still had people you had a report to and and you didn't have full autonomy, even though you had a lot of autonomy. Well, so autonomy is a good theme, right, for running an unmanned Hmm. aerial vehicle company. Uh, So what's it like to be the big cheese and to have to make decisions that affect everybody beneath you and and be responsible to investors for, for running this thing? You know, in some ways it's it's the same, and in some ways it's radically different. So it's the same in in the sense of that you know I'm I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a manager and I've got teams and you know we ship products and today these products are drones and they used to be magazines but <laughs> you know there's this the same you know QA and you know layers and roles and responsibilities and all that so that's 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 somewhat similar. The big difference is that you know in the magazine world, just putting the mag I, I also ran you know the the, the digital side, but mm-hmm. on on the magazine side, you know when you said you know ship it, you like pushed a button and this. File went into the ether, and then there's pr- factories called printing plants ran. But I didn't know anything about that. I never, I never visited a plant, and I didn't have to get into the details um, unless something's went horribly wrong. I didn't have to get into the details of the manufacturing process. Today, I run a Tijuana drone factory, among others, <laughs> and I am like, you know, the nice thing about the media business is that we had like 300 years of printing press technology already established. Yeah. You know, now we're building these, you know, these these electronics and you know CNC and they can place operations largely from scratch. And um, I have to be intimately involved in the kind of, you know, the gritty details of, of manufacturing, which is um, thrilling in one sense, is that, you know, we're able to kind of, you know, really innovate and control the, the production process. 
but it's also, you know, it's the 3 a.m., you know, the emails telling you that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a yield issue or that there's a, you know, that there's a, you know, a, the pick and place machine is, you know, is, is registration has gone off and it's just like, oh my God, I can't believe I have to know this stuff. I remember you talking a year ago, and this has struck me really uh, profoundly in the book that you had written just um, before that about the maker movement and then in our conversation. And and I think it's it's echoed back and forth for the last year in in a lot of the podcasts I've done that have involved products is the issue of scaling, that sort of of ping-ponging back and forth between – uh, we have to outsource this. It's become mm. too big for us to do it. We can't afford the machinery. Now we're spending so much money on outsourcing. We need to. Bu- we can now afford the machines. We're bringing it back in, and we're spending you know five hundred thousand dollars. Now it's become too big again. How much has that continued, or have? Or are you now so, everything's in house, and you're just buying more and more and more. Uh, uh, you're investing more capital in your own manufacturing capability. You know, I, I feel like if you have a kind of a long enough view of history, it's exactly like the, you know, like like the kind of history of the of computing, mm. which is the sort of, you know, the the, the centralization versus versus, uh, you know, um, not distribution of computing, but the sort of, you know, the edge versus core oh, yeah. approach is like mainframe, then it's personal computer, and now it's back to cloud, and it's just kind of the oscillation between the two. I think that's probably inevitable, and it will go on forever. I mean, right now. We are currently vertically integrated, which is to say we've got you know we we, we manufacture almost everything ourselves, um, big big factory in in in, in Mexico, um, and we're doing so sort of tens of thousands of units. Once we get to hundreds of thousands, which is which is soon, I think we I, I you know I don't want to be in the manufacturing business. The only right. reason I'm in the manufacturing business is it allows me to innovate fast, um, and you know, the reason we're innovating fast is because we're at the bleeding edge of technology. Um, you know the, the you know that's 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 what the marketplace demands. But it's actually not what, what consumers want. Consumers just want a product that works. And the more we innovate, the more they have to update, et cetera. So I, I'm hoping that as we get to the kind of the more consumer level size in the hundred thousands, that we can I, I can outsource the consumer division to Foxconn and you know and focus my own manufacturing on the you know the the more maybe you know commercial use or agriculture or some more kind of you know enterprise commercial um size um and just kind of you know again you know you know in house out of house being sort of determined by scale well, so this is so this is the uh like you make a a, a certain kind of blade for your uh, you know the helicopter style rotors and it's incredibly important for you at this stage to totally control that process right. end to end and tweak it and do continuing engineering but you're going to perfect that, and then you don't need to make thousands of it. You're going to make a hundred thousand or, or a million a year, and you don't need to make that million. Exactly. So the big the big difference between a sort of thirteen thousand mile supply chain, which we have China do it, versus a one mile long supply chain, <laughs> the, the length between our San Diego and Tijuana facilities, is is time. So there's a bunch of other th- things involving sort of efficient use of cash and you know and 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 the and your ability to forecast demand versus do just in time uh, manufacturing. But basically, it's fast. Short supply chains are faster supply chains. Now you want fast when you're at the sort of you know the the the, the you know the, the vertiginous part of the learning curve. Um, but you know with fast comes a lot of complexity. Comes you know comes the you know the, the you know the need to build your own factories, the need to operate your own factories, etc. And so I think that really it's a you know I said it was um, it was scale, but it's also time oriented. You know when things are innovating fast, 
vertical integration just-in-time production allows you to kind of rev the designs really, really quickly and to be able to kind of tweak and get a feedback loop between production and engineering. Once you get to the more to the slower pace of the innovation where it's like, okay, we've pretty much figured out what the design is. We now can confidently make 100,000 100, of them. That actually is a time when you, you are willing to kind of, you know, let the thing sit on a container ship um, for, you know, for, for six weeks and, you know, and, and take and have 100,000 in inventory in the in the channel without too much risk um so i think there's those two dimensions the um you know the 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 the, the time dimension the scale dimension are largely how you think about whether you how you construct a company in the hardware era so you uh, famously popularized the term long tail with your book uh, several years ago about that and i i swear to god that i used it uh, sometimes 10 times a day. I was using it 10 times when I talk about the publishing industry and blogging and so forth. I've just used it a whole bunch in some recent podcasts and interviews um, because it's such an apt way to, to visualize things. Um, and it applies in a lot of different industries. And I, I wonder in this particular space, maybe in you know personal electronics uh, more, or consumer electronics more generally, but in this area where you've got this huge growth in, in these autonomous robotics area, is there, a, is there a long tail? Is there room for small manufacturers like 10,000 companies making really small bespoke quantities of, of cool things and then bigger and bigger firms at the top? Or is it really bigger firms because of the, the innovation required in the scale of manufacture to make it affordable to produce a, a reasonable number of units? That was kind of you to ask the rhetorical question as if it were <laughs> real. And I know I, you and I both know the answer. It's called Kickstarter. Mm. Um, so, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the long tail, um, which you know, I have this hammer and everything looks like a long tail <laughs> nail to me. Um, so the long tail was basically an observation based out of the kind of looking at the early statistics of the web coming out of places like, you know, like, like, like Amazon and the music industry and eBay and, and, and Yahoo and, and, and others, recognizing that, you know, when the barriers to entry to creating content in those days and the barriers to entry to finding content and distributing content had fallen to zero, which is what digital does, then suddenly you see more content and 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 uh, it segments the market. People are able to sort of say, oh, well, rather than having to choose between these 10 things, I can choose between these 10 million things. And it turns out I don't actually want the same, the same 10 ones I used to. And that was all I had on, on offer. Um, that was digital. Digital, right. you know, the last 20 years were largely sort of lowering the barriers to entry to, to digital um, production and distribution. But physical stuff, hardware, was, was harder. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, you know, you had to, you had to do tooling and manufacturing and you need to, to there was real costs associated in the supply and the, and the distribution channel was like the shore, store shelf. Um, but over the last five years, and this is really what the maker movement does, is it kind of has made hardware look like software. Um, you know, increasingly, you can prototype hardware using things like 3D printers and, you know, and, and, and services like Shapeways. Um, you can use things like Arduino, which make the, uh, the electronic side really easy. You have open hardware platforms. Then you have things like cloud manufacturing that allow you to send these designs out to some virtual in-house, some service to have it manufactured for you. And it, you can start to, you know, basically, you know, make physical stuff at very low cost, thus, thus Kickstarter. And what this initially does is it surfaces those markets of 10,000. This is mm. that sort of famous Kevin Kelly phrase about, I mean, I, I think he actually said 1,000 true fans, but I would sort of modify that to sort of say, you know, 10,000. You, know, you know, the markets of 10,000. 10,000 is this fascinating number because it's too small for mass production and it's too large for artisanal production. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could always make, you know, so, so the Foxconn's of the world can make a million of something and like your, you know, your Brooklyn, you know, you know, artisanal salami maker can make, you know, hundreds of 
something. But 10,000 was this tough number to get at. And you know, to say nothing, not, that's on the production side. On the consumption side, just distributing 10,000 was also, was also kind of hard. It's, you, know, you, you had to kind of you know, walk it. I remember in the zine you know, punk rock days, you know, you'd have to kind of literally walk your vinyl around from store to store in little boxes, etc. So the great thing about today is in the Kickstarter phenomena is, is, is a perfect example of it is it allows you to do discovery of those markets of 10,000. It allows you to kind of very cheaply, you know, test the market, get some, do a prototype, you know, be able to kind of sell hundreds or thousands of them without a lot of capital, you know, costs. And if that works, and if there is, if there's demand for it, you can, you know, you can then scale to, you know, to 10,000. Now, you know, you know, if you're lucky and it turns out this, you know, the Pebble smartwatch I've got on my wrist right now is a perfect example of, of something that started designed for a market of 10,000 and what may ultimately be a market of 10 million. Um, you know, then you have a kind of a, a nice kind of, you know, first world problem, which is, which is, you know, you know, you've discovered a, a market, your, your 10,000 turns out to be a lot bigger and you have to kind of deal with the, the, you know, the, the headaches of creating a real manufacturing or, you know, supply chain, you know, um, a market. But the fact that you can, you don't have to guess at what's a million, you can start with 10,000 and that there's, and there can be a long tail or maybe a mid tail of, of, you know, of companies and entrepreneurs and maybe even, you know, amateurs and, you know, and, and hobbyists exploring these new long tail markets in physical hardware and physical, physical products means that we may see the same sort of cultural explosion innovation that we saw in the digital space a decade ago. Well, that's magnificent. <laughs> that's fantastic, and, and more. It's, I shouldn't say it's more positive, but that's um, that's very exciting. Well, so we'll have to talk in another year and see where on the exponential uh, uh, power law curve up towards that big head of the long tail you guys have climbed. But thanks for checking in, and congratulations on the last year. <laughs> thanks, Glenn. It's fun. Thanks again for listening to this anniversary special, and thanks to all the guests in the first year who shared so generously with their time. You can now support the production of this podcast directly by becoming a patron at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Support us at a level of $1 or more per podcast. At higher levels of support, you get our on-air thanks and more. We'll be adding more patronage benefits over time. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, that's P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. We're also a happy part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.